One thing I've learned having uh, traveled around the world is uh, at the end of the day, human beings are human beings. There is a commonality uh, among all of us. We are all yearning for that emotional connection. So number one, you have to create that human connection. Because when you put that emotional connection at your uh, foundation, then you begin really to discover what people are capable. That's something that they employed and it was valid across. Then now you have to see if you want to implement procedures or, or policies. People are coming from different levels. Quickly, I have to realize that uh, the baseline for them may be different than where I was. So in that case, then I have to bring that to their level. And the best thing to do that is uh, to involve them in crafting what will be the roadmap to follow. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked about the power of gratitude with Scarlett Keys. Today, we're back at the heart of leadership. Our guest is Mozongo Mokwa. He's the president of Hathaway Advanced Materials, a specialty chemical manufacturer. He's also the author of the bestseller, Be a Leader of Significance. In his long career, Mozongo has been on two parallel journeys. First, a global journey from Congo to Belgium to Canada to the US and more. Second, a professional journey from pure science and research to the leadership suite in the chemical industry. You will hear the certified Mozongo built a research group from scratch with no prior management experience and listen to his insights on the complexities of adapting to unfamiliar environments. We also focus on the art of leadership, specifically the critical role that self-awareness plays in effective team management. We dive deeper into the topic of team growth and discuss how fostering a growth mindset and instilling a sense of psychological safety within a team are the cornerstones of effective leadership. Drawing from his international experiences, Mozongo provides practical steps to develop the skills and how to leverage meaningful conversations, a sense of belonging, and the value of individual contributions to create a thriving workplace. Let's start like I start every episode. Why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners, where you are now, and sort of the journey that took you here, and you can take as little or as long as you want. Yeah, first of all, you know, uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for having me on your show. I am actually uh, excited to have uh, this uh, conversation with you. You know, I have 30 years in senior leadership position in R&D and operation. I work with global companies in the uh, chemicals and material industry. Uh, I was uh, fortunate to have uh, been given assignment that put me in a position where I was able to build and transform organization. Uh, along the way, I've developed uh, some transformational leadership style, if you will, which I think has been impactful, uh, not only for the growth of the companies, but also on the people. So I work for uh, global companies such as SC Johnson, uh, Rykold, uh, Poly One, which is now Aviant, Asian Paints, Philips Carbon Limited. Now, uh, I've been very lucky to have lived uh, in a number of uh, countries. Uh, I was born in the Congo. Uh, I lived in Belgium. I lived in India. I've been fortunate to uh, manage a number of teams around the world, some in Brazil, Mexico, Austria, the Netherlands, Belgium, India. 
I have lots of passion for, for leadership, actually. So uh, in addition to uh, my professional pursuit, obviously, I should mention that years ago, I've crossed the Arctic Circle. So I'm a member of the Polar Bear chapter of the Order of Arctic Adventure. And that's a Canadian club there. So today, I'm currently a president at Hathaway Advanced Materials. This is a specialty chemical company. And I'm also a leadership coach. So in a nutshell, this is my background. You mentioned you were born in Congo. What was the first impetus to leave and start traveling? You know, how young were you when you, when you started your travel and what drove you to make the decision? It was as young as 13. So uh, 13 years old. Uh, so at that time, me and some of my siblings, we moved to, uh, to Belgium, going back and forth between uh, Congo and Belgium. And then uh, I did my bachelor degree actually there. And then uh, from there, I decided to emigrate to Canada. So initially, actually, it was just to, to look for a job. So I came to, to go to graduate school almost by accident. And then uh, when I finished my PhD, uh, we came to the U.S. to do some research as a postdoc at uh, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And then from there, uh, we stayed. So that's really uh, uh, how it came about. I assume you were a scientist when you were doing research? Yes, yes. yes. You mentioned you work in the chemical world. So was, were you like a chemist? Were you, what was your science background? Well, I was an engineer. I was an engineer in, in the area of uh, civil engineering materials. What was the, the path to go from the world of research to then actually go into industry and leadership? Because for people who start down the science, you know, a science journey, and then they got into a postdoc program, going into industry is not necessarily the most common path. What drove your decision? When I was at Northwestern, actually, uh, after uh, two years there, uh, I was offered the position as a, a research associate. But I decided not to pursue that path. I was more driven into industry in terms of building something we can commercialize, something I could feel, something. I, I could see. Uh, I felt uh, uh, certainly at that time that uh, the types of work that uh, we were doing there, they were too much academic in nature. Not that they would not have uh, a direct application, but I was more driven into uh, what was really applied, so to speak. So that's really what, what uh, took me there. And then I was actually lucky to get into, uh, into this situation because uh, those days, that was in the 90s, that was a big recession. So many companies were just uh, laying off people and so on. Not many were hiring. And then I was fortunate uh, because at the university, actually, uh, I was in charge of uh, showing those industry partners or potential partners to give them a tour of the campus and so on. And then there was one gentleman there who was uh, vice president of R&D. So uh, I spoke with him and somehow we we made good connection and I asked him if there would be opportunity for somebody like me. Uh, so he asked me about my background and so on. And then he decided uh, later on uh, to hire me after a series of interviews. So at that time, I just uh, finished a uh, PhD. So I took that job with uh, this uh, specialty uh, chemical in Ohio. Uh, I was really excited. I'm huh? part of the research development. I was envisioning myself uh, developing new products, lots of uh, intellectual property. But then what happened is uh, not long after I started, the vice president of R&D asked me if I would uh, be a manager. So he told me, I had spoken already with other managers, I want to create a research group, 
we all think that you'll be the right candidate to do that. But I have to confess that I was a bit scared because that's uh, uh, something I did not contemplate, at least at that time in my career, because this was just, you know, a few months I just have joined the company. Huh? And I'd never managed people before. So, so in a way, I was caught off guard by this announcement, which was really sudden. So I told him, I think, I'm not too sure if I'm ready for this. He said, don't worry, you'll be fine. Your other colleagues, uh, we, we had spoken to them, and uh, they would agree that you'll be the right candidate. So the idea was for me to build a research group, which they did not have, and build it from scratch. So they gave me a couple of scientists there to work with. So suddenly I was a brand new manager with no management experience, and I have to figure out things out by myself. A few people helped me uh, along the way to fill in the various gaps, but I was more or less on my own. But then one year led to two, led to three, and and so on. And then uh, I was fortunate those uh, groups we built, they were very successful. And then eventually I moved to a senior role uh, in various companies and so on. And throughout everything, I've never regretted being in a leadership role. So that's actually a very important point because transitioning from a pure science, pure research, pure like kind of like doing and being in the data role to a management role, it's one of the biggest challenges that people face in, in their career. What were one of the two or three things that really helped you transition in that role? You know, what were some moments, if you will, where you're like, oh, that's actually a role that I enjoy and I'm good at? What really crystallized for me there, Dino, and, and, and hopefully for, for some of the listeners there, is the thought that growth and comfort, they, they will never coexist. In other words, for you to grow, uh, you need to be put in some kind of uh, uh, situation of discomfort, if I can put it that way. So if one can think about what we have learned the most in life, actually it's, uh, it's during the times uh, where we were put in a somewhat of risky and certain situation. So that crystallization that really became clear to me that to take on uh, risky changes in different jobs, which actually, as I look at my career, I took those risky changes that were really difficult. I realized that when I put myself in those circumstances, even though it didn't feel right on the inside, I learned a lot. I also learned that just because I may feel uncomfortable inside, it doesn't mean that you uh, should not pursue. That was something because from there, then when I moved to another company in Wisconsin, that was another big change for me. But one thing I rediscovered, having lived in those various countries and you know getting used to various culture, it helped me also to grow and to show a great deal of agility, a great deal of flexibility. I think all of that built up and helped me actually manage those changes. So you talked about the fact that a really important component of growing is to be in a position of, if you will, discomfort, which, which comes from facing new things. How do you balance the risk? You're looking at a growth position. You know that there's going to be discomfort. What red flags do you look for to say, okay, that is too much discomfort. That is too much risk. And what do you look for in terms of like the parts, if you will, that are going to be your foundation in your new position that will allow you to face that discomfort? I think there are a number of ways. Uh, one needs to be self-aware. Obviously, if uh, <laughs> there is a position where they ask you to be a director of finance, you can't fake it, huh? because that could put uh, the company in jeopardy. 
So, so you have that uh, reality check and uh, self-awareness. Is this something that I can do? Is this something that uh, I have the, the strength and, and the passion to do? So that's really uh, certainly one thing there. But I think in my case, what helped me is the growth mindset. That's really what I think really helped me a great deal. And, and also to see whether uh, you can be in a way, you need to get the sense that this is first, this is the right fit for you. Ah, it fits your value. It, it fits you, you, you are. And then uh, you have to look at, uh, do, do I have the basic competency for me to grow and thrive in this job? So, so that, those are the elements that, uh, that I would say one would. Obviously, you've put a lot of thinking into what leadership means, what type of leader you are. At what point in your career did you start consciously thinking, okay, this is the type of leader that I'm going to be. These are the characteristics that I look for in myself as a leader and in the people around me. And what are those characteristics, if you will? This is a great question, Dino. Uh, let me maybe, uh, it will help your listener if I give a story. So early in my career, I worked for a head of department who was a very, uh, it was <laughs> what people would say, the traditional boss. It was a top down. And this fellow, he had a, a great deal of control over the distribution of project and who will be selected to lead some of those uh, key initiatives. And uh, he had a number of favorites in the, uh, in the department. Those are the, the only people who will be given those great assignments. Now, somewhere along the way, our company decided to launch an initiative to explore some key new technologies. Uh, and it was clear that eventually these technologies would cycle into uh, my portfolio and uh, my work will then to be uh, uh, selecting who will be the person who's going to lead the project. Now, there was one gentleman in the group that I knew he was uh, extremely capable uh, because this particular project required Somewhat a person who is a good technical fellow, but also detail, who can uh, be a good project manager. So I had in, in my mind to select this individual. So here we are at the, at the manager's meeting, and, and the head of the department uh, asked me uh, who I had uh, in mind for that particular project. So I told him, well, I've already selected uh, so-and-so for the, for the project. And uh, he said, well... Uh, I thought we should have given it uh, to uh, another person, uh, Frank. I told him, well, I think Frank is uh, certainly a capable individual, but I think for this particular one, uh, it will be uh, it will be Jim that I think can do a job. And then I could see in his face, you know, he was uh, <laughs> he was very angry. He was red of, of, of anger. And, and then he said something like, uh, well, I, I'd, I'd like Frank to, to lead this. Uh, should we should we go with Frank then? Uh, so it was not really a question of whether I had any, any any free will, so to speak. So it was more like I'm throwing a, a life jacket to you, you know, to pull you there. And I was convinced, no, uh, of, you know, I'm going to go for Jim. I think he's uh, well suited here. Now, this fellow, Jim, was a very hardworking and, and good fellow. And uh, for whatever reason, the head of the department did not think much of him. So I gave the project to Jim. He understood uh, the protocol uh, of our company, and he was well aware that uh, the fact that the head of the department did not see much in him. But he was confident in his ability, and he trusted that I share his confidence. So we went on, we did the project, and the project became successful. So that's when I realized at that time, Dino, that uh, 
that it was very important for me that, that essentially I was true to myself. I was not operating uh, based on uh, obligation and expectation of others. Uh, I, I more or less put put a little bit uh, my job on the line because uh, many of my colleagues told me that uh, I was making a big mistake, uh, they're going to fire you, and so on and so on. But it turned out that uh, working with this fellow, giving him that confidence and support, we were extremely successful. And this fellow, it turned out to be one of the most productive scientists that we had in the department. That's a great story. It raised a question that somewhat connects to the conversation we were having earlier. You know, you talked about the role for your own development of getting yourself in position of growth and discomfort as you moved on in your career as a manager and as a leader. How do you use that principle to grow the people on your team? You know, how did you think about creating the right opportunities for them to learn and develop? And and in a situation like this, how do you think about creating the right protection? Because obviously, you had a lot of confidence in Jim and in his ability to succeed. But if the project had not worked out, you know, there was exposure not just for you, but for him as well. Obviously, as a leader, you have to uh, create all those opportunities for others. Uh, you also have to develop them in the process. So, so that means you have to, to give them the support. But before you do all of that, uh, you, what, what, what the leader must do first is to be able to engage the team to build that, that, that trust uh, among the team members. So this fellow Jim would have never come and work with me did he not trust me, so to speak. So that engagement preceded all of that. Uh, that's what I would say. So you cannot just go give somebody a project and then say you can support him, but there is a, a overall context of engagement that needs to, to come first and then, then continue on at, along the way. So which means that it comes from the leader making the effort, uh, making the effort to understand the people you know, under their care. So that's one thing. So how do you then uh, create that trust? You create it by being visible because nobody is going to trust somebody who is not visible. And you need to be present. You need to be present. So, so that context needs to be established. You need to establish that context of psychological safety. It is within that context, then you can then create those opportunities, then you can develop people. As we talk about psychological safety and creating the right context, the leader who's listening right now, who wants to sort of think about the environment that they're creating for your team, what are the most important like practical steps that they can take to, to create a safe space for their team to grow? The first thing I would say, be visible. So, so don't hide, hide into, into your office. Nobody sees you because by you having your door uh, always closed, that means you don't want to interact with anybody. So have your door open and interact with your people. Now, there are a number of uh, junctures during the day where we could interact with people. Coffee, one-on-one meeting, when you're giving them feedback. So having those conversations, but conversations that really matter. Don't just come and say, hello, how are you? Ask the individual, ask your colleague, ask the employee, what did you do last week that was exciting? That puts them in some sort of uh, reflective mode, and it brings some energy into them. So I would say this is an advice that I would say leaders should start doing tomorrow. So visible, be present, engage, engage others, so that you can 
created that environment of psychological safety, the environment where you're building a bit of uh, trust there within the group, uh, vis-a-vis you, vis-a-vis them, and uh, them vis-a-vis others. Because one of the things that I've, I've learned is uh, employees, they look for this uh, sense of belonging. Yeah? And you as a leader, you should create that environment. Uh, I've, uh, I remember this uh, uh, gentleman many years ago, and he was a great, great chemist, great chemist, uh, excited with his field. If you're talking to him about the chemistry, you can see his eyes twinkling and so on. So I asked him one day by the coffee machine, I said, what is it about that this place that you like? And I was expecting him to tell me, oh, we are working on a great chemistry. Uh, you're giving us a good project and so on. No. What he told me is that uh, actually what I like in this place is that during lunchtime, I can play ping pong. I can play ping pong with, uh, with Joe. I can play ping pong with Steve. We can talk. Then after that, we can go have lunch and then we can exchange ideas. So there is a, a element of affiliation there, element of, uh, of belonging. That was, uh, Extremely, extremely crucial for that. And the other thing is that the employees, they also want to, to feel value. For example, this employee many years ago told me that I met him one day. I was passing the corridor and then I just told him, I said, Hey, Mike, I looked at him and I said, I did not forget you. He told me that the gesture of just telling him that, Hey, I've not forgotten you, even though I've not spoken to you for a long time. It meant a lot to him. He said he felt that that he was being seen by me, he was being seen by the leader. And that meant a lot for employees. Huh? Uh, for that meant a lot for you, for employees. And then as we talk about psychological uh, safety, I have this story about uh, this uh, female employee. She was in marketing. She got transferred into my group. She was telling me that when she got hired in that group in marketing, uh, her boss was uh, praising her, how uh, good of work she was doing, good projects, and so on. And then after a while, she began to hear those rumors that, uh, oh, you know, uh, this man is not too, too happy with your work, and so on. But but she was never told as such. And she did not have the courage also to talk to her boss, hey, what's happening? So eventually, when she got transferred in my group, and as she was relating the story to me, I asked her, why we did not just go there and, and ask him, hey, well, what's going on here? because I'm no longer invited to meetings and so on. She says she did not feel safe to go there and ask that question. And she felt she did not feel safe. In many of those meetings, she felt invisible. Uh, so it's extremely important to create that environment. It, then you are able now to do a number of things and then people can, can, can grow, they can unleash their creativity, they can be themselves in a way. What's interesting in the story that you just related is that part of the safety is actually, it seems like the directness that if somebody is at a place where you're not happy with their work, you have an honest conversation so that they feel that they're getting the truth. Is that also part of the element of creating safety? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned that you have uh, worked and managed in many, many countries. How do you think that has impacted the way that you think about leadership? Because you've worked in a lot of international countries, but then in all those countries, you may be working in a small local place. And so you may be coming with your experience and then be surrounded by a number of people that maybe have only seen that part of the world. How has your experience 
informed how you work with people and and what do you bring of your experience to a team maybe when you go to like a smaller place you know you, you take on a plant or a or a company in a smaller place where a lot of the people are local yeah one thing i've learned uh, having uh, traveled uh, around the world is uh, at the end of the day human beings are human beings there is a commonality uh, among all of us we are all yearning for that emotional connection so what i've learned is that number one you have to create that human connection. Because when you put that emotional uh, connection at your uh, foundation, then you begin really to discover what people are capable of. So that's one thing that I, I found, and that's something that, uh, that, that I employed, and it was valid across you. Then now you have to see if you want to implement uh, procedures or, or policies. People are coming from different levels. I work for in, in, in some of the countries where where I will come. I have these ideas. I know this is what we are doing in the U.S. But then quickly I have to realize that uh, the baseline for them may be different than where I was. So in that case, then I have to bring that to their level. And the best thing to do that is uh, to involve them in crafting what will be the roadmap to follow. That's when you would see that this is really the baseline and this is where we would like to go. So those are some of the two lessons that that I've learned uh, and which I employed and uh, and 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 it worked. I I always gotten back to that, uh, you know, sort of uh, as basics, if you will. And this is coming from my personal experience as somebody who's grown up in one country and has spent most of his life in a different country. What countries feel like home for you? What's home for you? <laughs> I get a lot of uh, that. I would say home is, uh, is, is in a way where your heart is. Now, because I have families and relatives almost everywhere, uh, for example, in the U.S., I'm the only one here, and uh, most of my siblings, they live in Europe. So when I go there, I feel at home because I can see them, we can talk, we, we, we have a number of things. In the U.S., I'm somewhat uh, alone in that respect. But on the other hand, it's also home because this is where I am with my wife. My uh, adult children are here. I have five grandchildren. So when I see them, I know this is home. So home for me is in various places, if you will. Huh? It's in very, because I have this connection in, in many places. That's great. So I know you recently published a book, and I want to find out what was behind the, the desire to write a book. And then if you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your book, that would be great. The book is called uh, Be a Leader of Significance. I have it here. The book uh, actually uh, is a reflection on my journey. Uh, I came to realize that uh, the work was never about uh, uh, market share or innovation, eh, where I was uh, successful in some of those companies. But really, the outcomes were the results of uh, that transformational change that started from ground up. So I have a number of stories uh, in the book, and I encourage your listener to, to check it out. I'm talking about engaging with your teams, creating opportunities for others, inspiring a shared vision, creating an environment and building a, a culture where good health and well-being will flourish. So those are really some of the things. Now, I wrote the book because I believe engagement is uh, crucial for organization. Without it, motivation or passion, uh, energy will be lost. Uh, so the book is really uh, advocating for uh, impactful leadership in everyday moments. 
the aim is to uh, inspire people to seize leadership opportunities, create uh, those moments of significance for others' growth. So that's really why I wrote the book. And uh, I'm hoping uh, managers or those who are aspiring into leadership role and senior executives who would like uh, to rejuvenate the role themselves, they'll find uh, this book uh, useful. I wrote it for them. Uh, At the end of each chapter, actually, there are a number of action and practices that people uh, can put to work every day as they're going to work. You said there's a lot of stories in the book. Will you share one with our listeners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One story is, um, I took a job. I took a job in one company there. So I was interviewed by the CEO. The CEO liked me and so on. And uh, he wanted me to come, bring some energy into their innovation pipeline and so on. So I resigned my job. You know, everybody was excited. You know, the kids were a bit anxious because they have to leave their friends behind. So now, one week before uh, my move, the headhunter calls me and it tells me that uh, things have changed. The CEO interview is no longer there. A new gentleman has been appointed the CEO. So then I'm thinking, well, then what's what's going to happen? Because I did not meet uh, that particular uh, gentleman. So then three weeks pass, still uh, the new CEO did not pick up the phone to greet me, introduce himself or whatnot. And then after a month, uh, the CEO came. He was uh, based in Europe. Then then he came, he took the job. And then uh, after a few days, he meets with me and tells me that, uh, listen, uh, I know uh, the, uh, the previous CEO <laughs> interviewed you. He had you. If I was in that position, I would not hire anybody from outside. That's what he said. But you are here now, so I just have to deal with you. So that was the first interaction I had with him. And then he said, uh, if it was up to me, I would have promoted uh, somebody from within. He said, I also made a decision uh, to reorganize your group and, and so on. So my role, uh, as a result, got very much diminished. So here I was in that environment. Uh, I wasn't really sure how that would work out. And it was, uh, I wouldn't say hostile, but uh, there were, a group of people there were somewhat hostile because they aspired to get that job, so they were not always uh, cooperative. And then, uh, so the, so I began now to wonder: say, should I quit? Uh, because it was somewhat of a difficult uh, situation because uh, some of those meetings also I was not always involved, uh, and, and so on. And then I did, it was somewhat of a challenging situation. So should I quit? Uh, maybe I should, but. But but I could not quit. In other words, my growth mindset did not allow me to quit. I said, well, uh, let me still try to turn this opportunity, uh, this challenge, this challenging situation into uh, an opportunity. They have uh, new sets of uh, uh, technologies here that, uh, that I could learn. So I applied myself considerably there uh, with the help of, uh, of, of other people in there. Actually, many people uh, those days, they thought I would just quit and, and leave. But, but I stuck there. I stuck there. And then I learned, uh, I learned those technologies. And then w- what happened is that once I, I step out of the, that, that space of uh, frustration, and then I was able to start learning. So, so that's really what, uh, at the, in the end, that uh, provided me with lots of energy because I was able to learn uh, new technology. The company was involved in a number of uh, merger and acquisition. So that was one aspect uh, that uh, I learned uh, from that experience. 
the management of all the, they had a huge uh, IP portfolio. So I was directly responsible for managing the payment and justification to the board why we're spending so many millions of dollars. So all that experience. What I learned there, did know, is that uh, w- when people face uh, challenges, you can easily become frustrated, you can be insecure, you can become fearful, but then there is always a bit of that discomfort when you learn new, new things. So you have to step, step out of that space for you to continue to grow. It's a great story. I think it speaks to something else also. You talk about the fact that you went through a decision process. You're like, okay, should I quit? Or should I stay? At that point, one could argue that either decision could have been good. But the most important thing, when you go through that decision process, if you're going to stick it out, because you've consciously decided, no, I'm going to stay, you need to leave all the negative baggage behind and go forward. You have a choice. You can quit. Or, but if you stay, you really need to make it work. And both are valid. The, the danger place is that, well, I'm going to stick it out and still complaining about the new CEO cutting your power, et cetera. So I really like this story. Great. So if people want to find you and find your book? Well, if they want to uh, find my book, it's called uh, Be a Leader of Significance, Build Your Legacy, Leave an Impact. They could find that it's on Amazon. It's also on Kindle and Audible. They can find me uh, on LinkedIn, Mosongo Mokwa. Also, they can check my website, mosongomokwa.com. And it is spelled M-O-S-O-N-G-O-M-O-U-K-W-A.com. That's correct. That's correct. Fabulous. All right. We're going to move now to what I call the personal section of the podcast. First question, what is an interest that you have outside of your work and how has it informed your work life? Well, the interest that I have, uh, I like reading. <laughs> I like reading a lot. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious by nature. So I read a lot. So I read magazines. I have a subscription to a number of them. So I'm, I'm by nature curious. I just have this thirst of knowledge. So that's something that I do. I like particularly uh, uh, nonfiction books. So that's something that I still enjoy uh, reading. But I get uh, lots of uh, pleasure just reading uh, in a different area. So uh, I know maybe some people have given up on, on learning after after they, they left school, but I think we should never forego that uh, the use of those skills huh? because I, I, I think it helps us uh, in our own uh, growth. Uh, it's a part of, uh, as they say, continuous learning, if you will. So I, I can immerse myself there. I get uh, lots of uh, fulfillment uh, once, once, once I'm drawn into those books. I mean... Uh, if I go to the mall, I, uh, there is a good chance that I'll stop the bookstore just, just to check what they have there. I may not buy anything, but just just, just that feeling. Next question, and this is my favorite question. Every era has business expressions, cliches, common thinking that are so overused that they lose meaning. Which is one that drives you crazy? Well, there is one here. <laughs> Certainly, there is this expression that people like using. Win-win. This is a win-win situation. Well, actually, I mean, what does it mean, win-win? Uh, win-win in the business world, it means that parties involved, they will benefit in some way. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, an outcome where uh, there are no losers. But I take issue with it in the sense that uh, I think it's an overused term. Huh? I, I think it's more uh, more transactional. I give you A, you give me A. I mean, there is a lack of authenticity, actually. I feel it's not genuine to say win-win, you know. 
uh, because it could be sometimes in a somewhat in a manipulative way, you know, uh, especially if one party has been using a tactic rather than a genuine approach to collaboration. And it can lead also to misunderstanding. Well, what does it mean, win-win? Sometimes it's win-lose, but you present to me win-win. Uh, that's an expression I, I really hate. <laughs> I hate uh, when people mention it, I just stay quiet <laughs> and then I move on. <laughs> that's great. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can go either route, food for the body, a recipe or a drink that you're loving right now. And if you go the soul route, a book, a movie, a piece of art, a piece of music, something that you find nourishing for your soul right now. Well, here's one thing for your listener. You know, I lived for many years in Belgium and uh, and I regularly go there because I have uh, siblings uh, living there. So I would like to, for them, uh, if they have not had a chance to drink a Belgian beer, uh, this is uh, Belgium is a small country in Europe between France and the Netherlands. They also have uh, on their eastern frontier, they have Germany, a small country, probably 10 million people living there. Uh, but they have 250 breweries, industrial and also smaller brewery. Yeah? It is said that they have 1,500 beers. When I was a student, I did my bachelor's degree in Belgium. Uh, every year we used to have a festival of beer. So they would bring beer from all over the country for us students to, to taste. Huh? Needless to say, many students were enjoying uh, that event uh, a great deal. But uh, so there are many beer there. It's really the yeast that they produce in that part of the world as something uh, special. It could be, it could have a bit of that sweet, sweet taste. So uh, when my sibling come uh, from, from there to, to the U.S., they always make it a point to bring me different bottles. So in my closet, I have uh, I have some here, which I only open a special occasion. But you have uh, those IB, uh, those monks, they, they were brewing uh, beer, which is called a Trappist, huh? the Trappist monk in Belgium. So one that I would suggest is a Chimay. It's very strong. Uh, Chimay, 6 7% alcohol. Uh, you have a Chimay double or double, <laughs> triple. And so, so that, that is a dark, dark beer huh, with the aroma of uh, grape a little bit there. And then you have the white beer. Huh, so those are unfiltered wheat. Huh? So they're a bit, uh, they have this, they use a coriander and, and dry orange so, you know, to, to give them that dynamic and refreshing character. Uh, so one I would recommend is uh, Hoegaarden. H-O-E-G-A-A-R-D-E-N. So that is uh, one. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then they have those lagers. 7 to 11% uh, uh, alcohol. Eh? So <laughs> the American beers here, they, <laughs> they don't achieve that level of alcohol. <laughs> so in fact, the first time I came here and I drank beers, hmm, well, this is like watery. Now, you have to remember those, uh, those beers there, for those of you guys who like drink beer, when you're pouring it, you have to generate foam, but then the foam should not disappear huh, after one second you pour, huh? like we see in most of our beers here. The foam has to remain there. So as you're drinking it, the foam is still there. You know, slowly, 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 slowly disappear. But anyway, so you have those uh, lager. Uh, they do have a special beer, you know, like uh, you have a tonique that has a nutty taste. And then uh, during the seasons, they have uh, different beer, huh? so that's really thing. But one common beer that I would recommend if uh, one of you guys uh, uh, can get it here, I've seen it uh, in some of the grocery store, is Lef. 
L-E-F-F-E. So that's a good Belgian beer. I did not buy it here. I always get mine directly from Europe. So I don't know what's the level of alcohol is in there, but that is a nice beer. So if you want a good one, left blonde. Huh? So that is really blonde Abbey beer with a slight hint of bitterness to it. So this is, uh, <laughs> I always get uh, a kick when I'm talking about. <laughs> I grew up in Italy and I drank Belgian beer. I drank Chimay's. I drank the various, uh, you know, Trappist Monk's beers. And I had the same impression initially when I came here in the 90s. Now now it's changed with all the local breweries that they definitely have stronger beers. But yeah, 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 I yeah. definitely second your recommendation that people should try Belgian beer. It is really, really good. Yeah, and there's another one I forgot, uh, which I would recommend. It's Lagueuse. Lagueuse. G-U-E-G-E-U-Z-O-Z-E. Good. Like when people are eating uh, mussels, usually they will uh, they will drink it with, with Lagueuse. That's fantastic. Mazongo, thank you so much for all your insights, and thank you for being on the podcast. You know, it was, uh, it was a great uh, having me on your show. Thank you very much. Good conversation. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews or ratings like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stick around because after the credits, I'm going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please follow us on all the social platforms that you're present on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Salverino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is a song from Susan Cattaneo. It's a little gem from her album, The Hammer and the Heart. It's called Smoke. I fall, I break, I yearn, I ache to make you mine I envy love, I want so much to make you mine I plead, I beg, you take and take, but you're not mine You're never mine You only want what I don't have Just out of reach of these two And smoke Crushed with doubt I shut my mouth So you'll be mine I charm, I choke You dangle hope That you'll be mine I growl, I bite I'm someone I don't even like So you'll be mine You only want what I 
is too 